Our text this morning is taken from Psalm 32. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. O shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's uh, a pleasure to be with you today because, uh, first of all, I've known Paul and Shiona and their family now for some years. As my son and Paul worked together as pastors in Spokane, Washington, and our grandsons are great friends. So we've had a, a, a wonderful visit the past uh, couple of days with the Rees. So it's a great pleasure to be with him and to hear his voice because I heard him preach for so many years. And uh, also to be here at Charlotte Chapel when I began my theological education a long time ago. One of the first four or five books that I owned was J. Sidlow Baxter's, uh, ex let me see, Exploring God's Word. I believe that's what it was. Or, anyway, I remember the book, not the title exactly. Explore the book. And so I've known about Charlotte Chapel from the beginning of my uh, theological studies all these years, and it is a great pleasure to be here today in this pulpit. Now, as we consider Psalm 32, it's noteworthy that Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, the author of the Confessions of the City of God, whose writings influenced almost every sphere of Christianity and Western thought, that he cherished this psalm as his very favorite. He read it, they say, continually throughout his life. And at the end, Augustine had it inscribed above his bed so that he could meditate on it and have it inform his spiritual life for the last light of day and in dawn's early light. So for him, uh, this great mind and this spiritual giant this psalm, Psalm 32, was an essential of spiritual life. 
Now you'll note that the title of the psalm is uh, called A Mass Skill, of which there are only 13 of these in all the 150 psalms in the Psalter. And the designation is thought to mean something like this. Maskil would mean a meditation, a skillful song, uh, a song of understanding. I think all those things are good. It is skillful. It is a song of understanding. But the general idea seems to be that this psalm is a teaching psalm, a song for instruction, a song meditation meant to sink into your soul and inform your spiritual life. So it's a mass skill. The second thing, if you noticed, if you're reading the margin, as we read the scripture this morning, you find the words Selah in the right margin some three times. And here in this psalm, it probably means uh, musically to pause or have a crescendo or a musical interlude. Not ex exactly sure what it means, but it's generally thought that it means a time of emphasis. Salah means to sort of sit back and listen, pause, and take it in. Now, keeping all of this mind, understand, too, that Psalm 32 is called a penitential psalm. And uh, in the psalms, there are seven psalms which are called penitential psalms. If you're taking notes, it'd be Psalm 6, this one Psalm 32, 38, of course Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 142. Now, penitential is not a biblical de designation. The Psalter nowhere has this title, but it is fitting for this psalm and these psalms because the church through the centuries has seen that it perfectly reflects on this matter of repentance and forgiveness. So those centuries ago when uh, Galileo was in prison for teaching the per Copernican view of the universe, part of his sentence was to, for seven years, to have to read these seven penitential psalms three times a week. Uh, they, they thought it would bring, I guess, political correctness, but this psalm only brings spiritual correctness, and Galileo says it was a great encouragement to his soul. Psalm 32 was written by King David after his repentance under the scathing accusation of the prophet Nathan when he said, You are the man for committing premeditated adultery and premeditated homicide heinous sins for which he did not repent for over a year. Now we know that King David wrote Psalm 32, first of all because it's entitled, and it's part of the Hebrew text, A Maskil of David. We know that it perfectly accords with the misery of his sin and then the joy of his repentance. And that the Apostle Paul himself quotes the opening two verses of this psalm in Romans 4, 6 through 8, and attributes them to David and calls it as part of the gospel. So this psalm today tugs at the heartstrings of our hearts because it captures the experience of every believer in times when he or she 
refuses to confess sin, and then confesses the sin and the joy that comes with that. And so, no wonder that Augustine loved it. And the image that I have in my mind of Augustine at the end of his life as, as an old bearded man lying in his cot so he could contemplate that Latin inscription over his bed again at the last light of day and dawn's first light. This psalm points us the way of forgiveness and blessedness. It's meant to inform every soul here this morning. And it falls into two natural divisions. Verses 1 through 5 are testimonial or biographical. And quite frankly, they are very personal and very affective. As he reaches for, in his immense vocabulary, to describe exactly how he feels under his sin and the forgiveness of sin. And then... 6 through 11 are a challenge as he challenges us in this matter and of course uh, coming to another peak of joy. So this is an ageless psalm. It is the oldest sin and it is fresh as grace. There's a freshness and a beauty to this psalm. Now, the psalmist begins the story with an initial shout of praise over his having been forgiven from the terrible threefold grip of sin. And this is in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, King David uses three separate words to describe the full dimensions of sin. They can be translated variously, but the way they're translated before me in verses 1 and 2 is you have the word transgression in verse 1. Then you'll see the word sin in uh, verse 1. And then the word iniquity in verse 2. And he takes those three nuances to talk about how his soul was totally, utterly dominated by sin. The word transgression is used to emphasize his willful rebellion against God's authority because whatever the sin, it is ultimately a transgression and rebellion against God. He uses the word sin then to indicate that it's not only rebellion, but that he's missed the mark. And of course, the image there is of an archer launching an arrow only to have it fall disappointingly short. And everything in David's life fell miserably and disappointingly short. He is a massive disappointment as king and massive disappointment in Israel's history. And then, thirdly, the term iniquity completes that terrible trio of this domination of sin because it really means twistedness, that his soul is twisted in base criminality. And the account of King David's abuses of, of uh, Bathsheba Uriah, uh, Uriah showcase each of these three dimensions. As Israel's king and psalmist, David intimately knew God's law. 
Deuteronomy 17 commands a Hebrew king to hand copy out a copy of the law for himself. So he knew the law intimately, but he blatantly sinned against God's law, the Torah, which he'd written out with a high hand. He fell miserably short of the covenantal obligations of a Hebrew king. And base criminality twisted his soul, and it took him down in throbbing, miserable guilt, absolutely dominated by it. Well, here, in the opening verses of this penitential psalm, he celebrates forgiveness with a corresponding trio of deliverance terms. You'll see them. Forgiven, covered, counts no iniquity. His transgression, he says, as he starts out, has been given. It's been picked up and taken away. His sin had been covered. For that year, he'd been frantically trying to cover himself. In whichever way, he was like a man naked trying to find cover and a fear of being exposed and every waking moment dominated by this fear that he would be found out. But blessed be God, his sin is covered by God himself. And lastly, he became a man, as it says in verse 2, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, this term, counts no iniquity, is God's way of dealing with sin. It is uh, rooted in Abraham's forgiveness it's rooted in the law. It finds full bloom in Romans 4, 4 through 8, where Paul quotes these very verses. This is the thing. It's phenomenal. God did more than not just count his iniquity against him. God counted him as righteous. And I have to say, if you're reading this, say, for the first time, if you're reading it through, if you just read... 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel, and got into those chapters, you, you want to say, what? A premeditated adulterer? A premeditated murderer? A righteous man? And you have to say, yes, by God's, God's amazing grace. And no wonder then David is so exuberant as he begins this song. The terrifying dimensions of the sin have been obliterated by that three-part pardon. And you'll notice, looking at verses 1 and 2, that he used the word blessed twice. The beginning of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. Well, actually, those are ecstatic plurals. And if we could... Uh, have our English say it, it would be the blessednesses of he, the blessednesses of the man. So it is a doubling of delight, ecstatic plurals. So David's soul dances in delight. Well, why is he so exuberant? Because his forgiveness is not a sham. 
Uh, it's not a psychological sort of self-forgiveness. Or if I was speaking to an American audience, I would say it's not the communal absolution from Ophrah, the high priest of American culture, high priestess. That it's real. The terms forgiven, covered, counts not, means one thing, real forgiveness. And along with forgiveness, the king's guilt, that huge, pulsing, throbbing guilt, as we shall see, was gone. And to top it all off, his soul's been delivered from deceit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, having been a pastor for some 41 years, over that amount of time, I've seen nearly everything. I once had a sitting elder, I mean an elder who was sitting on our council of elders at our church, who the very day that he flew home from Washington, D.C. to host an evangelistic banquet for our church, to emcee it and host it, he'd been with a prostitute in Washington. We found it out that week. The most astonishing deceit and duplicity. Deceit is the currency of sin. And, and in unconfessed sin, a spirit of deceit will overtake your soul. And I'm not talking just about sexual sin, but a sin that you will not confess will emerge you in a mist of deceit. It involves self-deceit. It involves delusion about the, the condition of your own soul. It involves public deceit and horrific domestic deceit of your nearest and dearest, your wife, the spouse, your children, your parents, your nearest and dearest, guile and lying and cover-up and hypocrisy and insincerity and pious cant. Oh, the pious talk of someone who will not come clean for their sin. And those of us who are in the grip of sin and won't confess it know what the, the psalmist is talking about, an orgy of deceit. But what release when there's confession. Now, David is opening his heart. He's being as effective as he can possibly be in trying to communicate and he does so by uh, the most intense inner confession that I know about. In verses 3 and 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Uh, first, there's the misery of his guilt. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Literally, my bones became old. Through my groaning, literally roaring, 
all day long and in a roaring. To borrow George Eliot's phrase, unconfessed sins produce a guilty roar on the other side of silence. In fact, she says there, she says, if we had the kind of hearing that could hear grass grow, we would die from hearing the roar on the other side of silence. One man described to me the misery of his unconfessed sins, saying that when he stood in front of the mirror to daily shave, you can see that clouded mirror, warm water coming up, he's shaving, and he looked at his reflection in the mirror that he inwardly groaned. Because the physical effect is a feeling of, of desiccated bones, of a porosis of the soul, of just kind of coming apart, aching, rot. That is what the effect of bottling up guilt does. And he hasn't said it all. He says that he experienced perpetual affliction, the end of verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now when, when God's hand presses you down and presses our guilt upon us, it's like all of life is freighted with lead. It's like Dante's uh, leaden cape as you feel oppressed. When there's no confession, it becomes heavier and ever more heavier. As Charles Spurgeon said it perfectly, he said, Better a world on your shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on your heart. Is God's hand heavy on you? Well, may it stay heavy and unrelenting until you repent, lest you miss his grace. That heavy hand is the hand of grace. And there's even more here, as David wants us to understand what his unconfessed sin does. There's misery and affliction are capped with lethargy. End uh, of verse 4, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Literally, again, my life juices were turned into the drought of summer. His whole life is sucked of energy. Entropy gripped his guilt-ridden existence. He didn't feel like moving. Living was an effort. That's what happened to David with his unconfessed sin. I have to say, isn't guilt wonderful? An inner howl? Wasting bones? Crushing afflictions? A troubled life? Life juice is gone? A lead-footed soul? You see the Salah there? Think about it. Because for some in a group this size, this is present tense biography and reality. Now, actually, actually, guilt is a wonderful thing. Not false guilt, uh, not the false guilt that comes uh, because you didn't become the Athlete that your parents wanted you to be, all five feet of you, uh, or falling short of your family's expectations because you got a C uh, 
in the spelling bee. It was rhinoceros, did you win? Not projected guilt, coming from other people, not self-imposed guilt, but what a wonderful gift, real theological guilt is for real sin. What a grace is that, that roar on the other side of silence, or that screaming conscience, that guilt-ridden heaviness as God calls you. And, and I want to say, if you have sin that you will not confess, you will not call it by its name, you will not bend your knee, you hide it, you're covering it, you won't admit to it, and if you are truly one of his, that misery will be yours from here on. You'll never escape. Prepare to be miserable and afflicted and evacuated because of God's good guilt and gracious guilt. Now, after that first Silah, David records the final thought of his biographical sketch with a dramatic account of what happened with his confession. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In an instant, his guilt is gone. There are some things that have to happen slowly in our lives, but there are some things that happen at once. And confession is now. And confession brings absolution now. You go back into 2 Samuel and you find the immediacy in King David's life when he finally confessed. 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. Confession. Boom. Forgiveness. Come to the parable of the prodigal in, your, in Luke 15, and when he is running back and, and making his, his uh, confession, he's interrupted by the Father who assures him of his forgiveness. Again, you see the Silah there? That's something to think about. The forgiveness is only a millisecond away for every person. That your groanings can be turned into hymns. And your real guilt, the guilt of my sin, as David calls it, can be forgiven in the blink of an eye. So that Selah is as joyous as the other one was sad and somber. What happens here? Now, as David informs us, we switch from the personal account of King David's experience to his ringing challenge. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. Again, there is immediacy. You don't put it off, you do it now. And if you do, the coming high waters of life, 
the chastening flood, the ultimate judgment will not overtake you. Today is the day to confess. Not when you walk out of this building, but now. Take it from an old pastor. It's now when you hear God's word. Now David is so transported by the reality of what he is saying that he interrupts the challenge with a tone of shout of praise up to God. Verse 7, he says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So beautiful. Far from trying to hide from God, he has now found God to be a hiding place. And the sense that he has is being surrounded by people with singing songs of deliverance. Here Spurgeon waxes imaginatively eloquent. He says, The man is encircled in song, surrounded by dancing mercies, all of them proclaiming the triumphs of grace. There's no breach in the circle. It completely rings him around. On all sides, he hears music. Before him, hope sounds the cymbals. Behind him, gratitude beats the timbrel. Right and left, above and beneath, the air resounds with joy. And all this for the very man who was roaring all day long. How great a change. What wonders of grace has done and can still do. And this is how the soul feels that finally confesses. And I unashamedly want to say, I want to use the word feel. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever, because of hidden, unconfessed sin, wasted away in miserable silence while your soul groaned or had God's hand heavy upon you, pressing you down so that your strength is gone, and then con confessed your sin and felt the forgiveness and release. Uh, th there's a sense in which it's like the laws of gravity have been vitiated. I've often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. The lightness and freedom. Do you want to feel that reality, you can. See the Silah? Think about it. Now, after this uh, interrupting with praise to God, he comes back to the challenge with a solemn warning from God. In the first person, as God speaks in verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which will be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The image that God wards against is, is a stubborn animal. Don't be like an obstinate, stubborn mule or horse. Now, David had been such an animal in his plunging, after Bathsheba, like a stallion after a mare. And then a stubborn mule in his brainless refusal to acknowledge his sin. 
I think what God is saying, let the sinner beware. You may reach up one day and feel that you're growing long ears up here, fur-covered ears, and your snout is getting long, and you reach up and you feel that you've got a bridle over your snout and the taste of steel in your teeth. Divine severity. Proverbs speaks of it. Proverbs 26.3, a whip for a horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a rod for the back of foals. Or as uh, Martin Luther memorably put it, we would not be need, need to be treated like mules if there was not so much jackass in us. Martin Luther. The Lord says he doesn't want to put bits in any of the stubborn children's mouths. He doesn't want to afflict the indignity of a halter, but he will if he has to. Uh, and as I look around here today and I see a lot of uh, uh, people that uh, are, well, there's teenage students here, then there are students that are right at 20s and then in through the 30s. What a great lesson to learn now. What a, what a lesson. What a lesson when you're my age. Well, we're getting near the end of this psalm. And King David provides a brief two-part summary of the lesson of the psalm in verse 10. First, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Oh, the sorrows. That roar on the other side of silence, those screaming consciences, those audible groans, self-loathing, the bones, the inner frame wasting away, God's almighty hand pressing down with guilt, weighing heavier and heavier, and then the lethargy of a desiccated soul. Such misery, as David describes it. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but then they experience the righteous. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That steadfast love is the Lord's hesed, his covenant love, his unconditional commitment to his children. And it's like the arms of hesed, an unconditional covenantal love with which he loves us, then surrounds his children as they confess their sins. And thus, David's psalm ends the way it began in verse 11 with that joy, that that shout of joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And well, we should. If we're his children, upright in heart. Because what David has taught in Psalm 32, right here, is the heart of the gospel. Think of this. King David had broken three of the Ten Commandments outright, and by implication, all of them, because he had coveted Bathsheba, another man's wife. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had murdered her husband. And the Old Testament sacrificial system made no provision for such premeditated sin. There was absolutely nothing you could do. David knew the law. He'd written it out. His own copy in Hebrew. He knew that there was nothing he could do. That is why in Psalm 51, the, one, the other famous penitential psalm, 
he says to God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No sacrifice, no offering, no liturgy, no nothing. He was hopeless. And rightly hopeless. There was nothing he could do but cast himself on God's mercy, which he did. And he understood that. And he understood that was his only hope. And he was forgiven. And that is what the opening verses of Psalm 32 celebrate. And that is why Paul quoted Psalm 32, 1 and 2, the opening two verses in Romans 4, 6 through 8, to show that David was saved by faith alone and grace alone. As he writes, and I'm quoting, here's Paul speaking, Romans 4, 6 through 8. David also speaks of the blessed blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David calls himself blessed. Paul calls himself calls him blessed. Twice David calls himself blessed because of God's grace. So I want to say that this is the gospel. And this is the gospel to all who believe here this morning. Confess your sins. Lay them before God. But this is the gospel for anyone who has walked through the doors of this place for the first time and wonders what Christianity is about. Paul says, this is my gospel. That Christ Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. And then Paul says in the opening of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. There's nothing you can do but cast yourself on Jesus, who died for your sins on the cross and was resurrected on the third day, and you will find forgiveness, release, rejoicing, and a soul that sings just like the psalmist did. Amen.